Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. As I'm recording this, Spider-Man No Way Home just grossed $250 million on its opening weekend, not only by far the biggest opening since the pandemic began, but one of the biggest openings of all time. It's great for Spidey and Marvel fans, but perhaps nothing to cheer about for those who look to movie theaters for unique original stories from visionary filmmakers. In that regard, it does not portend well for the future of the standalone original movie. Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley debuted to a weekend gross of under $3 million, or about 1% of what Spider-Man made. I know we've been discussing this a lot of late, but as Pollyanna-ish as I'd like to be, I don't see things getting much better. The theater experience more and more is becoming a gaming experience, a turn from storytelling to spectacle and sensory overload. Honestly, there's room for both. I enjoy a big bombastic adventure too, but I'm more directly drawn to a unique story in the hands of a gifted and original storyteller. Something new, something trailblazing, a tale that takes me somewhere I've never been before. A story involving realistic, complex characters drawn into a tale with surprises. It's getting tougher for movies like that to find their way into theaters, and every time an original, self-contained film fails to attract ticket buyers, it's another nail in the coffin. Nightmare Alley may be a remake of a 1947 classic, but few modern moviegoers have seen the original. This new version is made by one of our most gifted filmmakers, Guillermo del Toro, working at the peak of his powers in a very personal sense. It is people with actors of the highest caliber like Bradley Cooper, Tony Collette, Richard Jenkins, Kate Blanchett, and Ron Perlman. It is a movie like nothing else out there in years, a true modern film noir steeped in atmosphere and amazing production design. Guillermo made the movie of his dreams and nobody came. Is it too late to turn this ship around? One can only hope for the best. But when Steven Spielberg's latest flounders at the turnstiles and in our genre, movies like Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, my favorite movie of the year, and Scott Cooper's Antlers produced by Guillermo and James Wan's Malignant have failed to garner ticket sales, it portends a bleak future at the cinema. Movie theaters are still where I want to see the movies, but with the two-year pandemic and the rise of streaming, I fear that the studios won't want to gamble on original, out-of-the-ordinary, captivating movies for grown-ups. They'll leave them to the streamers. I promise not to keep harping on this, but if there's ever a time we need people to show up at the movies for original films, it's now. Otherwise, it just might be too late to save the cinema experience. Probably the first modern blockbuster and the movie that changed the course of film exhibition in 1975 was, of course, Jaws. It came from a time when all of the biggest hits at the box office were new and original experiences. Jaws, The Exorcist, The Godfather, none of them were like anything that was out there at the time. It was indeed a golden age. And one of the architects of that iconic story and many others, Carl Gottlieb is with us today to share his experiences with fish tales, improvisational comedy, goofy dinosaurs, and much more after this. Available now from Dread, Ditched. Desperate to escape an overturned ambulance, a group of paramedics are trapped with violent prisoners. The group quickly discover that they are the victims of an ambush, with the perpetrators hunting them down one by one. Ditched is available on demand and digital everywhere right now. Get your hands on the Blu-ray February 15th. Carl, welcome to The Slab. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, I, uh, you know, you've got such a 
diversified career in this industry. My first awareness came of your work when you were with the committee in San Francisco and doing improvisational, and I assume it was sometimes scripted as well, but you were a performer writer in that group. Tell me how that formed. Well, um, I didn't form the group, but the notion of a resident improvisational theater kind of began in Chicago with the Compass Theater and Playwrights Theater at the University of Chicago back in the 50s. And then it expanded with the Compass Theater and then Second City began. And then, uh, then there was a committee, which was formed by a, a couple of people from the uh, Second City who weren't happy and sought an alternative, more political. So Alan Myerson and his wife, uh, Irene, founded the committee. They raised backers. They uh, set it up in San Francisco. <clears throat> and I... <clears throat> I joined as their as their first stage manager, uh, uh -huh. and and uh, uh, had a very happy time there. And then uh, after a year or so, in which time during I directed a company of the committee while the first company went to Broadway. Then I they came back and I was demo I was directing the caretaker company. And then the the original company came back, and caretaker company went on unemployment, and I went back to being a stage manager. <laughs> and I realized it was kind of a dead end because the producer and his wife owned the theater, and the, you know no, nobody was going to make me a producer because they were the producers. So I decided to try my luck in New York, uh, where the producer who had produced the committee on Broadway, a guy named Arthur Cantor, very famous publicist and producer in his own right. Right. Offered me a job. So I went to New York to work for Arthur Cantor. And you were from New York originally, oh, right? I was, I was born and raised in Manhattan. I took public transit to school every day for six years. Yeah. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I transferred to Syracuse in my junior year because I was just tired of riding the subway every morning <laughs> for six years. So I wanted to go to a school that had dormitories and a football team and all, you know, all that dink, dink Stover at Yale kind of stuff. And uh, Sir, Syracuse uh, accepted me, so I went and I majored in a dual major in journalism. They had a great journalism school, one of the great ones in the country. Now it's the Newhouse School of Communications. In those days, it was just the J School. <laughs> and then and uh, School of Speech and Dramatic Arts, where I, you know, I majored in theater. So I was a dual major in theater and journalism, and I was lucky enough to work in all those areas from the day I graduated. Uh, and I just, one job led to another. And where did that interest in performing begin? Were, were your parents, did you have family who were uh, into the performing arts or no. were you the renegade? No, I was, uh, I was uh, like George Carlin used to, you know, I was, I was a class clown. I was somebody who used laughter to diffuse uh, uh, situations with tension. And then uh, when I hit adolescence and I got big and strong and, you know, nobody was going to mess with me anymore, uh, I still had those instincts to make, you know, make everybody laugh and smooth things over. So that, that seemed to be a natural for me. So I, I kept doing that and, be, you know, and, and uh, got a reputation for being a nice guy and a smart guy and a funny guy. And I enjoyed it. You know, I, I must say, uh, you know, being a center of attention is not bad for us organisms. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, well, that training in theater, in school, in theater, and in journalism certainly helped when it came to writing screen material. You had developed some stuff with Steven Spielberg before Jaws came along, so I'm interested in how a guy from improvisational comedy in the committee ends up writing the biggest box office movie of its time. Well, the, the way it happened was uh, the committee, after years in San Francisco, opened an L.A. company in 1968, I think. Uh, and I was one of the actors from the show that was chosen to go down and open the L.A. show, the uh, L.A. edition. And so I got there and uh, we were a hit. We, we scored great reviews in the, the daily press and the trade press and 
uh, and, and the music press. I mean, we just we just we scored in the underground papers, Daily Variety, and the two daily big big city dailies. Everybody loved us, so a lot of people came to see the show, and we'd improvised nightly. And, and uh, um, Spielberg and I had the same agent, and uh, he, he put us together. He knew that I was a few years older than Stephen, and I had a kind of a, a wide social background that Stephen could benefit from because he was a kind of a, a solitary nerd at that point. So he started <laughs> hanging around the house, started hanging around my house. We started, uh, my house was kind of a salon. Everybody, all the musicians from Laurel Canyon used to hang out at my house because it was uh, equidistant between Laurel Canyon and all the recording studios in Hollywood and the Hollywood Bowl and the Greek Theater. So people would stop right. at our house to get loaded or you know come down off of a performance. And then Stephen would be in, in that salon from time to time. Uh, it was very funny. He got his first car. He, he signed his contract with Universal Studios and with his uh, new money as a TV director, uh, he bought a new car. It was a, exactly what you would expect from a guy from Phoenix, Arizona, who was <laughs> 19 years old or 22 years old. It was an orange Pontiac Trans Am with a spoiler and big, <laughs> and big tires. <laughs> And then Stephen took one look around the town and one look around all the cars parked at my house and realized that nobody was driving orange Pontiacs. Everybody was driving Mercedes. No, he bought the wrong car. Yes. So he immediately bought a Mercedes. He bought a little, <laughs> little 220s. And this is when he was 21 years old and doing Night Gallery with Joan Crawford. And exactly. He directed the pilot for Columbo. He was, I mean, I, I was in a couple of his TV movies prior to Jaws. I had been in a movie he did called Something Evil. Oh, yeah. Predated pre, pre, uh, pre The Exorcist, but it was the same theme of Possessed Little Girl. And then I appeared as an uh, uh, ongoing uh, in a pilot that he... Uh, he had directed a pilot for Columbo, and then uh, and then they did a spinoff for Martin Landau and Barbara Bain called The Savage Report, and I was in The Savage Report. Wow, uh, perfect casting. An actor, yeah. And then uh, and, and then the committee, op you know, the, when the committee opened, you know, Stephen was a frequent visitor at the show, and we'd hang out, and our mutual agent, Mike Metavoy, would sign me as soon as I had gotten you know, a real job, not on stage, but at the CBS, uh, I was a, uh, I got the Smothers Brothers hired me and I went to uh, this location here. This is CBS. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was such a counterculture breakthrough in the world of mainstream network television. The Smothers exactly. Brothers were, were doing comedy that was not your sitcom style. It was very hip. They didn't look the part, but they could not have been more into a changing world of comedy that you were a part of. Well, they were the vanguard of counterculture comedy until Saturday Night Live came along. They, you know, they, Smothers Brothers was as hip as you could get. And, you know, there's a group of us who started on that show as young writers, <clears throat> and all of whom made, you know, uh, advances in television comedy since then. Uh, the, that class of writers at CBS included Steve Martin and Bob Einstein and Lorenzo Music and a guy named Paul Wayne and McLean Stevenson. Uh, and Mason Williams, who went on to have a hit record with Classical Gas. Exactly. And Mason was, and Mason was a close friend of Tommy and had turned him on to acid. So every, <laughs> you know, there, was, there, was, there was a lot of ferment going on, a lot of people hanging out at our house, a lot of and, and, and then uh, my my agent at that time was Mike Bedavoy at CAA. Who is as big as you get. Yes. And, and he put me and Stephen together to write, <clears throat> to write stuff that we could, that Stephen could direct. <clears throat> and we went around, we went, we wrote some pictures together and we walked, went around pitching them and we couldn't get hired because nobody would take a chance on locking Steve in as a director. Uh, mm. So, because he hadn't done a feature yet. Exactly. And, and Duel was just around the corner, but it was hadn't come out yet. So right. he, you know, he was kind of an unknown quantity. So nobody hired him. Uh, so uh, we languished, but the, the work kept going. I kept getting other jobs. 
uh, I went to work. Uh, Bob Altman hired me to be in MASH in the movie. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I got some great jobs. And, and uh, Stephen, of course, did Amblin, which got him signed to Universal. And at Universal, he directed the pilot for Columbo <clears throat> and Night Gallery and a bunch of other things. And established, uh, and then and, and Sid Scheinberg, who at that time was president of Universal MCA Television, uh, saw the promise in Stephen and hired him, put him on a long-term co universal contract as a contract director. And uh, where he did Duel and then later um, the Fish movie. <laughs> the Fish movie. Well, tell me the first time you read Jaws, the book, did was it because you were being offered to be the screenwriter uh, yeah. to take over after the first two writers? Right. They, they, they said uh, we're having problems with the script. Joe Alves is working on it. Joe Alves was the first one to work on Jaws, even before Steven. The production designer, yeah. Production designer, yeah. Uh, so they, I, I, I read the existing script by Howard Sackler. I read, read the book, the novel, to see if there was anything I was missing or that should have been included or should be cut out. And I found, you know, huge stretches of, of novel that didn't belong in a you know, a good movie story. So I read it and uh, I was impressed by the unique uh, handle in that film, which is the shark was the lead character. An inanimate, you know, creepy villain became the most important character in the movie. With dead eyes. <laughs> so I, I, I signed on uh, to rewrite it. And it was only three weeks before principal photography started. So I was, you know, Stephen and I had just this, uh, just this reckless uh, confidence of youth. We said, you know, we had this great big production meeting because everybody was meeting in Hollywood before we all decamped to Martha's Vineyard to start shooting because it was yeah. three weeks. And uh, Stephen and I sat there with an outline on a, three pieces of paper scotch tape together and went through the whole script fearlessly saying don't build the lighthouse we're not going to be inside you know do build this you know we're going to spend a lot of pages in the brody house make sure the house is you know lit from all angles and we went through the whole script and a few days later i was on a plane with stephen to uh to martha's vineyard we stopped in boston to do casting locally we didn't have uh, Dreyfus or Shaw at that point, we were scrambling to get three leading actors. Scheider was already on board, but I knew Rick Dreyfus from LA. He had had an improvisational theater of his own. So I reached out and he said, oh, I read the script. I, I think it's a movie I'd rather see than be in. <laughs> I said, come on, I'm on it. I'm doing a rewrite. We're going to make it funny. We're going to make it human. Come on up, at least meet Steven. So luckily, you know, uh, Ricky was on the on the East Coast doing publicity for uh, Duty Kravitz, so he came up to Boston, walked in the room at the hotel where we were casting extras, and he had the Levi jacket and the wool watch cap and the scruffy beard and the rimless glasses. And Stephen took one look at him and says, "Don't change a thing. Don't, <laughs> don't change your clothes. You you got it." And and, uh, and then a little later we got Shaw. Well, which is amazing. Let's let's back up just a little bit. Um, Peter Benchley, the author of the book, also was contractually obligated to write a couple of drafts. Yes. Uh, so that happened. But he's a novelist, not necessarily well versed in the machinations of making a movie. But then Howard Sackler was brought on board next. So politically, how did that work out? How uncomfortable was it for you to come on board? Not at all. It was, it was a, uh, I mean, if we had all been working in the same room, it would have been very uncomfortable, but it was what I call a serial collaboration. You know, Peter did the first, uh, pass first two, three drafts of it. It was part of, uh, it wasn't so much that they were interested in his screenwriting, but it was a way to give him more money in addition to the rights purchase that he had gotten, you know, okay, nice. we'll give you this much for the rights and you can write the screenplays for whatever money. So he did, and those are the drafts that Sackler inherited. And then Sackler went at it and 
contributed a great deal, including the Indianapolis speech. He found mm -hmm. that <clears throat> and uh, put that in the script. And then that's the script that I inherited. And did Stephen bring and, you on board? Yes. Okay. So he, you he were somebody Stephen trust, trusted and brought in. Yeah, he sent me a copy. Of, he sent me a copy of the Sackler script, which I still have, and had a note on the cover saying, "Eviscerate this." <laughs> Analyze it. So I, I did, and I wrote a long memo, long, you know, two, three pages of single-spaced comments, which I sent to Stephen, which he showed to Zanuck and Brown, and I got one thing dead wrong. And I got one thing dead right. The thing that I got wrong was I, I remember commenting in 1974, I said, do the teenagers have to get killed because they go in the water? You know, is that, you know, is that that horror movie trope? You know, you have sex, you die. You know? <laughs> yes. I think that's a wrong note. And then of course, Stephen proved me wrong by doing the best, the best death in movies. Yeah. And then um, what I got right was, I did say, and I have this in, in print, in writing, I said, if we do our jobs right, me and Stephen, people will feel about going in the water the way they felt about taking a shower after Psycho. Right. And to this day, in the AFI top 100 horror films of all time, it's Psycho is number one and Jaws is number two. Exactly. And I, I was able to tread the boards of Psycho myself. I directed Psycho 4. <laughs> With uh, Anthony Perkins, the uh, which came along thirty years down the pike, yeah. but uh, well, you know, was, the, the iron, like the iron law of sequels, which I'm happy to share. The sure, sequels only the last one loses money. <laughs> well, the last two in the case of Psycho did, but but that's okay. Um, <clears throat> there was another fortuitous thing about your working on this as an actor playing Meadows, as well as the screenwriter who's there day to day, constantly churning out pages for the production and for the director. But you were also writing a book on the making of the film, which is probably the premier making of book ever. I, I was hired uh, when John Landis was going to direct The Incredible Shrinking Woman, which he later was directed by Joel Schumacher. I was brought in to write the making of, and the very first book I got was The Jaws Log, which to this day is, there it is, which is the, the greatest of all, and you've updated it over time. Yeah, I, I, didn't, uh, I, didn't, I didn't plan on, on uh, doing it, uh, I didn't plan on, on writing it. Uh, it just, it kind of came about after the fact. There it is. Right. The Jaws log. And the latest is the 30th uh, anniversary edition, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think this is the 35th. Anyway, when it went through all these printings. Uh, no, what, what happened was a, uh, uh, the film was finished and the, studio was making plans for merchandising and they had just they'd just gotten a foothold in publishing universal had and they'd hired somebody to liaise with the publishing companies they thought they had a buyer for a making of book but it was originally going to be a a a, a coffee table photo book with you know comments by the author by benchley by zanuck and brown and by steven spielberg and Steven said, can you write, I'm too, too busy prepping Close Encounters, would you write my my third of, of the book? So uh -huh. I said, sure, I'll, go, I'll ghostwrite it. I, I didn't have any ego. And then, then Zanuck and Brown dropped out, and then uh, Peter Benchley dropped out, so I was left alone to write the book. So I went off to a fat farm with all my notes, because I had been there. Luckily, the thing that made it easy for me to write the book is I had been there for, you know, Two, two and a half months, three months uh, while we were shooting the film. And I met almost all the principals and the few people that I didn't meet, I could go out and interview, which I did. I mean, I interviewed uh, Carl Rizzo, who was the little man, the little person who uh, went and had the shark misadventure in Australia. With a little shark. <laughs> no, sadly, with a big shark. That's, that's yeah. what about. Uh, so I, I, uh, so I, I got a chance to interview everybody, and I had all my material. I went up to a fat farm in the uh, in Sonoma, 
and went into isolation for a month and wrote the book. And then uh, and I got it finished and it came out in, in time for uh, a July release. Would have been nice if they released a day and date with the movie, but the movie came out in June of 74 and my book came out July 5th of 74. And all the money that I made from Jaws came from the book. I didn't get paid shit for, for writing and acting in it. Really? I got scale. Wow. Well, tell me about the experience of being there, because even a writer who's on the set is not really on the set. They're in a hotel room somewhere. But you were an actor. You're on the set. Your presence was requested by the director because you're every day writing pages to be shot that day or the next one. Tell me yes, about how could, that I, worked, what the house was like and what the set was like. Well, the, the house was this lovely uh, log cabin in, in Martha's Vineyard in Edgartown, not far from the town. Uh, it had uh, three or four bedrooms. Stephen had one. I had the other. We had a housekeeper who cooked breakfast and supper. We had lunch on the set. And whenever I wasn't on the set, I was at the log cabin. I was writing. I had my little desk set up there. And uh, the thing that was useful about being on set was that if you know the actor wanted to try out a line or try to ad lib something, they'd say, would it be okay if I said? And then I, as the writer, I could say, yeah, yeah, you say that. And I would tell Stephen, he's going to say this other thing. And Stephen would say, oh, yes, or no, 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 have him stay with the script. <laughs> And, and it was kind of this give and take process that uh, eventually produced the movie. Uh, I was just writing, trying to stay ahead uh, of the schedule. And interestingly enough, I mean, greater love hath no writer than to write himself out of a script. <laughs> if you look at the original, original release print of Jaws, I've got co-star billing. It's, uh, you know, Scheider, Shaw and Dreyfus, Jaws also starring Carl Gottlieb, Murray Hamilton, and Lorraine Gary. That was the original billing. Pretty damn good. Yeah, and then but my, my character shrunk as a result <laughs> of my rewriting. I rewrote, rewrote my own character out of the movie. Uh, not out of it, but you know, I'm in it much less than I was when I started. Well, you actually shot a couple of scenes yeah. that eventually ended up getting cut. Right. Well, in one of them, I fell in the water. And, right. And they didn't have time to dry out the costume. So I said, the hell with this, let's move on. We'll we don't on. need this scene, yeah. <laughs> well, we need this scene or a scene like it. And the scene like the scene that we came up with eventually was shot, you know, four months later in the tank at Universal. And it's of course the great scene where they discover Ben Gardner's head in the boat. Right. The biggest jump in the movie. Yep. And I, I was there in 1975 in that theater, jumping with everyone with uh, my date, spilling her popcorn all over me. So thank well, you for that. For that, that whole summer, uh, Stephen and myself and my wife, we'd go out for dinner and we'd look at our watch and say, oh, it's 10 after 8. It's time, it's time for, the, for the head. So <laughs> if we were finished with dinner, we'd drive over to the theater where Jaws was playing and we knew the manager, he'd let us in. And we'd go in and stand in the back of the theater and watch the whole orchestra, 1,200 seats, the whole orchestra would go, woof, when that head popped out. How satisfying is that? When oh, I did a, a, a Stephen King movie called Sleepwalkers and it premiered at the uh, Chinese theater and going there opening night, when a certain event happens there and everyone in a 1200 seat theater reacts with that. Yep. It's, it's so precious. Well, you, know, you know, you know, at that point, you know, you've done something right. Yeah. Yeah. And when you were making the movie, it's well chronicled, no better than by you yourself in the Jaws log. It was a, troubled production to say the least i think troubled production might have been coined to describe <laughs> jaws um tell me how everybody kept going beset by everything that could go wrong murphy's law was well in action during the production of the film well we we were lucky we were in martha's vineyard so we weren't under the daily scrutiny of the suits in the tower uh they left Stephen pretty much alone. Lorraine Gary was married to Sid Sheinberg, who was the head right. of the studio, which didn't hurt. Um, 
but she was doing a very credible job, and it's not like she was hired just just another pretty face. She she actually did a great job. Right. So, um, but it was in the old. It was in the. Everybody forgets that Jaws was in the classic sense a studio movie. There was a location department, a camera department, a set and props department. You know. Uh, actors on per diem, production managers, it was it was made the old-fashioned way, which was difficult because we were over budget and over schedule and kept falling further and further behind, but uh, there was little, the studio had little choice, they could either, sh they, had, they, they could, at one point we were worried that the suits were flying out to Martha's Vineyard, including Scheinberg, who wanted to see his wife. Uh, right. And when they got there, it was possible that they would look around, see the problems we were facing, and just say, fuck it, you know, f wrap up the location and come back and finish the movie on the back lot and we're done and we'll get it out. You know, hmm. we'll get back what we can. Right. But wiser heads prevailed. Bill Gilmore, who was the production manager, uh, took it on himself to uh, hide the latest set of figures on the movie. Because in those days, the movies, everything was done by, you know, with calculators and spreadsheets. And there was a spreadsheet for Jaws, like every other movie, that had, you know, cost, cost budgeted, cost to date, cost to complete, you know, three columns. Right. And, the, you know, cost budgeted had been climbing up and up and up and, uh, cost to complete had been climbing up and, and uh, uh, what it would take to finish. And he had a disastrous set of figures projected that he just finished in time for when the brass hats got there. And so it had been budgeted at three and a half million dollars, but by this time, by this time what it was, was like, it looking like? By this time it was about six and a half and he had papers that showed it was gonna be north of eight. Wow. But he didn't give those papers to the studio. He could have lost his job. He, wow. he committed a heresy for production manager. He finished the figures and said, you know what? These are better in my drawer, it locked up until the suits go home. Good decision. And, and that saved the movie. So we, we got to finish the movie on, on the vineyard. And then they, the production came back to LA and, and they did finish on the back lot. But, uh, and, and the scenes they got in the back lot worked great. So all in all, even though everything was going wrong, we would keep catching these breaks where things would turn out for the best. Well, another couple things that were happening was that the book was released while you were shooting the movie. And you saw the, the book sales were, it, it was a phenomenon. That and then getting footage back from a director who really knew what he was doing. Uh, I think your chronology is a little off. The movie was finished. It was in the can. I went back on to write some looping dialogue and everything for, for, to finish the film. Then they told me I was going to get a shared credit. And I said, fine, that's good with me. Yeah. And then the movie came out. And then by that time I had finished the book, I'd been finishing the book in that, you know, three months before the movie came out. And, and then the, I got to leave the vineyard in, in July when I, they were through shooting everything on land. There was nothing left to shoot. There was that dialogue in it. It was just the shark and the water and the boat and right. the three guys. At that point, I was superfluous. So I, my wife met me in the vineyard. Uh, we took what little money I had gotten paid and saved, uh, bought a brand new little 2002 auto, uh, BMW, little little boxy sedan. <laughs> we bought one of those brand new, drove it to California, stopping in Nashville to visit my friends who were shooting Nashville. Nice. At the exact same time. And we got back to California. And uh, meanwhile, back on the vineyard, they were slogging along trying to finish the film, which they did eventually. But the book was had come out and was doing great business. Summer of 75, 
I mean, the book went through, the original one went through like 23 printings and sold 2 million copies. Whatever wow. money I made on Jaws came from the book. That, that, that bought me a house. So it was published, the, the novel was published before the movie started production? The novel was published, no, no, after the movie was produced, but before it was released. Got it, got it. And then the book so. was pretty, pretty simultaneously released. So everybody who was seeing the movie, you know, in the studio, in the theaters, could go in the supermarket and find it on the shelves. It was a mass market paperback and it was everywhere. And Amazing. It, and it sold millions of copies. Well, you ended up staying on board the Jaws legacy um, with Jaws 2 and then later on Jaws 3, Jaws 3D, which for a while was going to be National Lampoon's Jaws 3 People Zero, if I'm yep. not mistaken, That's true. Uh, with Joe Dante uh, attached to direct. Right. Were you involved in that version because no, of your no, comedy I, roots and all? No, that was, uh, uh, they didn't ask me, I didn't want to be. Uh, I, I had done my sequel work. To this day, I've never seen Jaws 4. Ah, uh, the revenge? Yeah. Because <laughs> what happened in 78, they got in trouble with Jaws 2. And I, I asked, they asked me and Stephen to come back and do the sequel. And I asked Stephen, are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? And he said, no, I'm prepping close to counters. I'm too busy. I got a script to finish and all of that you know you can you do it if you want so i said oh, okay and and uh so i said okay i'll i'll uh, sign on but i you know i've got to come up with a new framing device and yeah so i i did i thought of a way to rewrite jaws 2 that would satisfy everybody so they hired me and they shot it my way and i got a screen credit on that one uh and then a couple of years went by and they, they started doing Jaws 3D with Joe Alves directing. And Richard and, Matheson was involved in writing that as yeah, well, right? Yeah, Richard Matheson wrote the first draft of Jaws 3D. Uh, and uh, again, you know, they got in trouble and they said, can you come down to Florida where we're shooting and help us out? So I went back down and did the same thing, jumped in while the shooting was in progress and started rewriting, you know, so Whatever. tell me, tell me the difference in the experience of working on the Jean Swark version of Jaws and the Steven Spielberg version of Jaws. Well, in the Steven Spielberg version, I was working with a genius. I mean, you know, he was clearly talented, but nobody realized the depth of his talent at that point. But I was working with a genius. With Jeannot, I was working with a journeyman director who was good and loved film and it always pissed him off that he was in the same contract class at Universal as Stephen was in. <laughs> but uh, but Jeannot was determined to prove himself and they fired the original writer and his wife who had dabbled in the screenplay. They, were, they had written a piece of crap that was, wasn't, wasn't shootable. Mm. So I, I figured out a way to salvage it. And they said, okay, Carl, you're on. Go rewrite it your way. So I did, and they recast the kids. And, you know, made you know, Joe got to direct a lot of second unit. And they made Jaws 2. And, and were you uh, involved in the same way that you were involved in the original Jaws? Were you around during the shoot? Yep. I, I, I moved to... I moved to uh, Florida, Fort Walton Beach, Florida, where they were shooting. Got a room at the motel, got a, a second, an adjacent room as an office to write in and started the rewrite, you know, as they were shooting, trying to stay ahead of the schedule. And I'd be alone in my room typing, trying, you know, trying to get ahead of the schedule. And the whole company was staying in this one big Holiday Inn, you know, like 100, 100 crew members. And every time I would like, get a little um, cabin fever, I'd go out for a walk. It was one of those big old Hollywood um, holiday inns with the open, it was an atrium and a garden floor. So I'd go out to walk around the atrium and relax. And everybody who was in the production, who wasn't on set, who was in the building, as I walked by, they go, they go, hey, Carl, how's it going? I go, it's fine, thank you. 
I'd walk another 20 steps. Hey, Carl, how's it going? That's <laughs> fine. Thank you. And then after I'd heard 20, how's it going? I'd go run back to the room and go back to writing. <laughs> so were lessons learned from the uh, potential debacle of the first Jaws in the production of the following two? Uh, you know, just try to write stuff and plan for it so that you're not improvising on the set at the last minute, which we were able, pretty much able to do. And, and it was the same thing. We had to scrap a few set pieces that had been built. And I said, no, we're, you know, we're not going to be in the lighthouse. We're not going to be here. We're not going to be there. We are going to spend a lot of time in the Brody house. And, and they budgeted the film at, uh, I think, $27 million. Wow. Uh, and then uh, because I, 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 I had a step deal, I got bonuses depending on the gross. So I, they sent me statements of, the, of the, the studio statements that they would send to the profit participants. And I watched the budget go from 27 to 29 million a year after the film had been shot. <laughs> uh, and I realized, oh boy, this is a, this is a, a, a mugs game. But at least I'm going to get <laughs> at least you had gross points. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I had points based based on gross. Yeah. And and yeah. Uh, they paid off, obviously. But uh, uh, it, it was uh, it was dicey to begin with. Uh, but we 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 uh, as Larry the Cable guy says, we got her done. <laughs> get her done. So, um, and that's why when Jaws 3D was on the planning board, uh, Joe wanted to direct, and the studio said, "Okay, you can direct." And uh, Joe, Joe said, "3D," and they said, "Okay, but we're not going to make the same mistake we made with Jaws 2, which encourages everybody at the studio to use your production number for their budgeting. Uh, uh -huh. So we're going to job it out to an independent producer for like a negative pickup deal." Oh, interesting. So Alan Landsberg came on and agreed to do it for a fixed price. And they went with, with him. And he was uh, even stingier than Zanuck and Brown. <laughs> so the last shot in Jaws 3D, or the, clim the climactic shot in Jaws 3D, should have been reshot. But he didn't have any time for retakes on that day. Uh. So consequently, the menacing shark hurtling at the screen becomes a lo long, slow approach by a Goodyear blimp of a shark. <laughs> well, yeah, it makes you appreciate the original producers. I, I, I worked with Dick Zanuck on a project as a writer once, and, and what a gentleman, what a, a terrific working experience it was. And it seems like he and David Brown were really great producers to work for from your account in the Jaws log. Yeah, they were, they were, they were stingy but they understood that as producers you have to step back and let the talent run the show at some point well there's so much more to your career than the jaws movies yes and i'm sure that um uh, you get asked way more about jaws than things that i'd like to talk about as well like the jerk um, working with Carl Reiner and, and Steve Martin on his first starring vehicle. You were the writer on this, and yep. it's a hilarious movie that lives on today, uh, but doesn't get nearly as much conversation as it should. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a lot of like, a, in some ways, it's similar to Blazing Saddles uh, in that it has an innocent racism to it, <laughs> which yes. people forget. You know, but it is a they try and make a point of it in in the movie. Well, they I do, but it's you know, happy black people singing and dancing. You know, that's fulfilling the cliche, right? Uh, and so, how do you feel about that? What? Uh, how? How has your uh, attitude towards the the movie that you wrote changed from the time it was written and made to today? Well, at the time it was written. Uh, I was, uh, let's see, I was in Hollywood. I had made Which Way Is Up with Richard Pryor. Right. And I had known Steve since my old days at the Smothers Brothers. We had stayed friends. I had house sat his place in Aspen. I went there to write a screenplay once. So we were, we were pals. And he got this uh, three-picture deal at Paramount. 
and he said to me, you know, I, I've never written a screenplay. You've written a couple, and including a very successful one. You want to, will you work with me? And I said, sure. So we said, okay, we're going to write a movie. So we, they gave us an office at Paramount. David Picker was head of Paramount at the time. He gave us an office. We'd go in every day and stare at each other and say, what are we going to do? We got this you know, green light for a movie and we have no idea what it is. So weeks went by, and then Steve at one point were floundering, and Steve said, well, you know, there's a line in my act that always gets a laugh. And it's, uh, I was born a poor black child. And it begins the movie. And the two of us looked at each other and said, that's it. What <laughs> if you were born a poor black child? What would that look like? And then we wrote the whole, you know, the first third of the movie, ba based on that. And then uh, Barry Diller and Mike Eisner came to Paramount from ABC Television, and like any newly arrived studio heads, they were supposed to work in a triumvirate with David Picker. But they shit-canned his projects uh -huh. and pushed their own, so the jerk got, you know put into limbo. Interesting. And uh, Picker and Steve Martin said to, to Paramount and to those guys, they said, look, tell you what, you owe us for two more screenplays. We've got a deal. You got, you know, you owe us, you got, you're on the hook for about a half a million dollars. Tell you what, you give us the rights to The Absent-Minded Waiter, which was a sh short subject that I directed with Steve. Stuff. Hilarious. Yeah. You give us the rights, the negative, give us, you know, the rights to that property and the right to set up, um, at that time it was called Easy Money, to set up the jerk, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll let you out of your commitment to two more scripts. So like, it was kind of a win win. And David Picker, like, went across the street and set up a, a, a like a negative pickup deal for like a two million dollars for the jerk and steve and, and david picker and made it and the, the rest was history and diller and eisner had you know had to kick themselves and explain to the stockholders how they let that one get away <laughs> it was a huge hit yeah so it, it justified everything um you were working with the genius of Steven Spielberg, you know, who was my first boss as a screenwriter ever. Um, and I can attest to what a, a, an amazing and, and nourishing uh, atmosphere it is to work within working with him. But you've been working with people like him and Carl Reiner and other esteemed filmmakers. But you had been directing theater in the earliest parts of your career. Um, tell me about the transition from screenwriter to director. They're very different uh, jobs with well, very started, different personalities. It started with the jerk. The idea was that, the, and this was, now David Picker, you got to remember, even in 1974, was a third generation movie guy. His grandfather had run a Nickelodeon in Boston at the turn of the 19th century. Wow. So he, he goes back. His, his background is you know impeccable. I mean, he, he knows the business as well as anybody. Um, so, so the plan was, in the old days, if they had an untested new breakout talent like Steve Martin, they would put him in a couple of short films or a couple of black and white programming films like, like, like Jack Oakey or he would be like a second banana in movies. But that studio system didn't exist in 1975. Right, no more two-reelers, yeah. No more, yeah, they couldn't put out a two-reeler. But they figured, well, all right, look, we'll put out a well-produced short subject starring Steve Martin, and we'll attach it to one of our big movies. I think it was going to go out with Grease. Uh -huh. uh, we'll give it to the exhibitors for nothing, but the audiences will see Steve Martin on the big screen as a film com comedian, and they will accept him when... Whenever we get our feature done, he will already be established. And since I was, I had eyes. I wanted to direct the feature because I had co-written it. 
they said, okay, you can direct the short. So I did. I directed the short. And that was my first real professional directing job. I had done a little film directing for Scholastic Films, but nothing on the scale. So I got to direct it. And we shot it on the Paramount lot with, you know, they spared no expense. We got a huge standing set that we were able to use. We had good actors. And I directed it. And I can remember, you know, uh, they didn't have dailies for two days. So we were through shooting it by the time I saw the dailies. Right. You have to wait for the lab to develop yeah. the dailies. Yeah. And by then you're done. <laughs> yeah. So I, I went to the dailies for that. And I saw the short. And I realized this will cut together. I'm a director. And I remember walking across the lot by myself, going from the screening room to our office, and everybody else had gone on ahead or had stopped to, for refreshments. And I remember exclaiming to the walls of the sound stages, I went, ha, huh! just ha, huh! I can do this. <laughs> Once you've got one under your belt and you realize, it's the same with screenwriting. Once you complete a full length feature script, you realize I can do this. Yep. It's, it's a revelation. It is. It is. And I, I was uh, never afraid of directing after that. I mean, there were times when I got a little nervous. There were times I would turn to everybody on the set and say, who wrote this shit? And it was me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I recommend that anybody who's ever directing be assigned to direct something they wrote before they knew they were going to be the director. So when you're reading your work as a writer, you go and you say, who wrote this shit? How am I going to direct this? As you know, six characters in the scene and they're entering and exiting and I've got to get them all and I've got to figure out my angles and not cross the line and do all of that. It's a trial by fire. Well, let's talk about your feature directing debut. Let's talk about I just watched Caveman again oh, for, for the first that. time since it came out in theaters. It is available on Amazon Prime for those who want to check it out. <clears throat> and it's so supremely silly. And it has so much to offer, not the least of which Ringo Starr being absolutely charming and hilarious in yep. it and the lead role. But also performances by Jim Danforth's stop-motion dinosaurs done in the Ray Harryhausen style yep. um, that had never been done before and were imbued with such character that they are just hilarious. Tell me about that, because maybe you didn't learn your lesson of working with special effects from your Jaws experience, because this was chock-a-block with them. I, I, know, I knew it was going to be a very effects-heavy movie. Um, and we shot it with, you know, Danforth was with us for a time. And then uh, David Allen, who was his uh, yeah. uh, assistant, Danforth got into arguments with the producers and mm -hmm. left in a huff. So David Allen actually finished the movie uh, with, with, and. Both hugely talented. But because they were both. Yeah. yeah. But because they were both really talented guys. There were times where I would act out what I wanted the dinosaur to do. My favorite is when the dinosaur gets high and falls off the cliff. <laughs> His little arms go, and he falls over. And I remember acting out that whole moment for for uh, David and, and Jim. And then and, and there was you know strictures to shooting for stop motion. You have to get everything exactly right because. Film elements have to line up to be integrated. But it was a great education in special effects filmmaking, in directing actors. I had Shelley Long, who was a wonderful actor. Yeah. Robert Bach and Ringo Starr and Jack Guilford, who was a great character actor, and John Matuzak, who was wonderful. He was a, he was a natural actor. He was brilliant. I was blessed with that. Avery Schreiber, who was an old Second City veteran, who I yeah. had been the committee decades earlier. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a really happy combination of talents. And you also wrote with Rudy DeLuca, and yeah. who has a long history with Mel Brooks and a very Borscht Belt style comedy that you brought to this dinosaur 
tail. Right, right, exactly. I know Rudy. Rudy was disappointed that he didn't get to direct because the producers had promised him he could direct, and they had promised me I could direct. Oh, there's an interesting tale. And then when the script that was rewritten with by Rudy, heavily rewritten, when they got the green light, I had they they called me, and then I had to call Rudy and said good news, you know, good news and bad news. Or for me, it was just good news. I said, good news, we got a green light. We're going to be shooting Caveman. And he said, great. And I said, and I'm directing. And he said, oh. And there was like frost in his voice. <laughs> oh, I, I said, well, what's, what's the matter? What's the matter? He said, I thought I would go to be directing. Who told you that? I said, he said, my agents. They promised me that if I wrote the script for short money, I could direct it. Wow. So they had lied to him. Wow. And then I had to say, well, I don't think he said, maybe we could write it. We could direct it together. And I said, I don't think that's a good idea. I think the direct movie needs one director and I'm it. And he said, well, we'll see. And then, you know, he went online and said that he had worked on it. And mm. we didn't talk mm. for a while. You know, it was, it was a, a sore point for him. But yeah, um, I can imagine. But when the smoke and dust clears, you know, we, we both had credits on it. So, and and it lives on in fame and yeah. infamy. Um, yes. Tell me about the casting process. I know that Ringo and Barbara Bach met and fell in love and married and are still together. I believe yep. after all these years. So I'm, I'm the match. I'm the matchmaker of directors. I, I repeated that the hat trick with uh, uh, Dan Aykroyd and Donna Dixon. Oh, Dr. Detroit. I introduced them and they got married. Because I was, you know, I, I was instrumental in hiring the actors. But when we were casting Caveman, we needed a small nebbishy kind of an actor to play the lead. There's not a lot of small nebbishy leads. And it was down to like Dudley Moore and Ringo Starr. Oh wow! And uh, we had been making. I think we made an offer to Dudley, but he was doing something else. In any case, Dudley Moore didn't do it, so we got Ringo. And then wow. we had a, a party for the cast in LA at my home. I had, I had a big house at that point. So we had a party for the cast and crew who were going to Mexico. It was like a farewell to LA. We're going on the road. Yeah. And uh, at that party, Ringo and Barbara's eyes met across the room. <laughs> Each was there with their own date, with a different date. You know, oh, interesting. She, she was there with uh, a, an Italian industrialist, and Ringo was there with a f rock and roll photographer named Nancy Andrews. Uh, and uh, very soon, Nancy and uh, Carlo or Franco, whatever his name was, <laughs> dropped out, and Ringo and Barbara found each other. Well, tell me about that. Tell me about the process of directing someone who was a rock and roll star, one of the biggest in the history of of music, um, who had limited acting experience, Magic Christian, things like that, but but seems so naturally adept. Tell me about what challenges you had as a director working with a newbie. Well, like it was a little little intimidating working with a Beatle, but I called Richard Lester. Ah, good choice. Because I had I had worked with Richard Lester on Petulia. He had directed me, so uh, I was an actor in San Francisco, and I worked in Petulia. Another classic, great yeah. film. Yeah. So I called Richard Lester and I said, "Listen, I'm going to be working with Ringo Starr. I, I know you work with him. What can you know? What can you tell me?" He said, "Oh, he says Ringo, you've got a wonderful natural talent, but he's not a film actor. So what I did was I always had two cameras on Richard." So I could always get you know a wide shot and a close up that matched. So, you know, take that for what it's worth, but be careful because you you won't get them to match from shot to shot. Uh, and, and and Ringo was aware of the need for matching. Uh, you know, he knew about it, but you know, he, he and and uh, he was teamed with Dennis Quaid on that picture, and Dennis right. Quaid is a natural film actor. Dennis never has to be reminded about matching. He always uses the right hand or and the wrong hand. You know, whatever he did in the master, he'll do in the close-up, even if it's right. shot months apart. We shot pickups for Caveman two, three months after production, and Dennis matched his own movements perfectly. 
Ringo had to be reminded and walked through it. So Dennis did everything naturally, and Ringo had to be multiple camera coverage and pay attention. Well, tell me about the the first screening of Caveman. What uh, was it a test audience or was it a cast and crew? Or tell me tell me what that reaction was like. Good question. I'm trying to remember what that was like. <laughs> I don't think I have a memory of it. Yeah. Well, did do you remember going I don't to? Remember. I don't remember. Did you ever go to a theater Not, where it was playing just to see the reaction? Yeah, I did. I did that, but not so much. I was, uh, I think, I was already doing other stuff at that point. I was probably doing Jaws 3D. Ah, I don't. I don't remember the chronology, but but, uh, um, yeah, I I I, uh, I don't remember much about theatrical versions of Caveman. Yeah, that's no, a movie you want to see. You want to see that movie with an audience yeah, because just do. like just like suspense, comedy is best shared. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to ask my ex-wife about that and see if she could <laughs> fill, fill in the blanks in my memory. Well, you've done so much, Carl, uh, as a performer, improvisational and scripted, as a producer and director, and as a writer. Is there any one of those conceits that you feel the most comfortable at, or is it, is it are they all the same thing? Well, no, they're not all the same, but the easiest is to be an actor. You just yeah. memorize your lines, hit your marks, wait in your trailer. They bring you treats. <laughs> they call you when it's time to go. You hit your mark, you say your words, you go back to your trailer. You don't have to worry about the production, the budget, and the other actors and the directors. You don't have to worry about all the other stuff that you have to worry about as director. So in terms of ease, acting is the easiest. Uh, directing is much more complicated. You've got to prep. You've got to think about a cast and a crew and a budget and how to get performances out of people. And you, you need you know rainy day plans in case things aren't going well. You've got to think of plan B and plan C and plan D. So directing is much more complicated, but at the same time, you're responsible for the entirety of the project. So there's some reward in that. It's okay, I did this. I was, uh, I was at the funnel, you know, where all the money passes through, and I had to direct it in meaningful ways. And then, so, as a writer, I mean, I would, I've only worked in a solitary sense as a writer before the movie is ever produced. Yeah. So I've not had the experience of being the guy on the set doing additional pages day to day to day. So um, it would seem to be almost as easy as acting because you're in a solitary place with a keyboard and your imagination and set free. Um, what is your approach to screenwriting? Uh, I find it lonely and painful and difficult, oh. and I've described the process as making ever-decreasing concentric circles around the keyboard until there's no place else left to go, and then you have to write. I'm a deadline writer. I don't write unless there's a check in the offing. So the writing so, is not a pleasurable experience for you? No. It's, uh, as, as George Bernard Shaw said, and I often quote him, they say, Mr. Shaw, somebody said, do you like writing? And Shaw said, I like having written. Yeah, yeah. So the between, pro the process is painful. between comedy and thrillers, I mean, the Jaws movies were, were things that kind of ended up in your lap, not necessarily by you reaching out for them, but them being offered to you. What, what field is most comfortable and most fun for you in terms of making, telling stories and making movies or television shows? Um, you're a funny guy by nature. Yeah, I, I, I like directing stuff that I've written because I kind of know what the intent of every line is because I wrote it. So the combination of being a writer-director is, you know, probably the best of it. Yeah, but more so than performing? More so than performing. Performing is, is fun and it's easy. And you're recognized. I mean, you know, nobody recognizes writers. You know, that's for sure. <laughs> everybody, as they say, you know, no, 
Nobody believes the movies are written. They think the actors make it up as they go along. <laughs> That's a line from the Bad and the Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I know that movie well. It's a beauty. Well, uh, Carl, I can't thank you enough for joining us and giving us a little bit of insight into all of the amazing things you've been a part of. And we've only scratched the surface and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Sure. Happy, happy to come back. It's a blast to finally get to know you a little bit better and uh, find out about your work. Great. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Carl. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.